0: That wasn't so bad, was it? It
1: was a little painful. Why? I don't know. I don't know. You're painful. I'm not that painful. <laughs> a little bit. I, I just
0: talked to Ann. What? What's she saying on her face? She doesn't say anything on Facebook. She didn't post anything on Facebook except photos. What is, what is Anne talking about me, I, really, I don't know. I'm a little worried. Yeah. I haven't seen
1: Anne since Speedway a couple
0: weeks ago. Mm, everybody sees everybody at Speedway. And you notice how Speedway has changed. Mm-hmm. They went from Richland Avenue. Uh, Helen and Dee went from Luchton mm-hmm. Avenue. Now they're on East State Street. I know. And Brian's down there. And so that's the weird thing about Speedway is that everybody knows who works at Speedway. Right. Right. It's like a whole cultural thing. Like they've worked there for 30 years and everybody knows who works there. And they moved from stores. The whole crew went. Yeah. And now the whole vibe has changed. Yeah. That's the milieu. People yes. make the media, not the building. And that should be advice to any hospital administrator who thinks a hospital makes a hospital. Right. Not the hospital makes a hospital. You gotta have a hospital in a coal it. You just gotta have people. People do great things in
2: the I now wanna go to sleep right now. I'm
0: Hello everybody, it's Todd Fredericks again. I have a doctorate of osteopathic medicine that I'm very proud of, and I got it from the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine back when it was the College of Osteopathic Medicine in 1993. And I now have the distinct pleasure and distinction of being a tenured faculty member here at my alma mater, Bleed Green, I love OU, And uh, I have also the distinct pleasure of being able to run this quirky little podcast called Rotations um, with the support of the Scripps College of Communication and um, and the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. They put up with me, and they uh, don't give me too much flack about it. And today, I get to continue a conversation with uh, Jennifer Schwerian and Lori Brown, both licensed clinical social workers here in Athens County. Uh, They work with really profoundly ill people, and... um, people who have had really tough lives. And that's one thing that I've learned in behavioral health. You don't end up in an acute psychiatric hospital on a lark. The The, the pathway to that event of being admitted to an acute psychiatric facility is usually uh, riddled with a lot of painful life events. And um, so with that, we're gonna continue on this notion of ACEs and CTIC uh, and what the efforts of CTIC is, in terms of implementing ACEs as a way of looking at long-term health outcomes, predicting them from childhood trauma. So with that, why don't we start, um, how do we apply, we, we talked a little bit on the last segment about how we apply this tool. And it sounds like and again, I'm, I'm speaking from the general practitioner's perspective because I work in pictures and crayons, right? So I have to keep this simple so I know what I'm supposed to use, how I'm supposed to use these things. It sounds like C, it sounds like ACEs might be something that if I had a new patient in their 20s, I might administer to it to get a better picture of where they've come from. Is that right?
2: To get a better picture of where they came from as well as where they might be going in terms of their health outcomes.
0: So as a predictive where they might be going, but certainly more descriptive of... What's happened to you in the first two decades of your life? Yes. Psycho-emotionally. Yes. And how might that affect your overall long-term psycho-emotional spiritual health? Yes. Yes. Is yes. that fair? Okay, so why don't we look at that? Why don't we look at the application, maybe some cases, stuff that you guys talk about, about how we use this thing? And what we mentioned before, Jennifer, about how CTIC's application right now is in the ob population. Mm-hmm. Okay, what's the logic behind that? Why do they want to apply it to ob patients? uh yeah
2: well the logic behind that is one you have to start someplace right and why not start at educating people who are raising children who could end up with a high a score and make them aware of that um for example um and and this is a little bit personal about me, but my husband and I adopted two children from Russia years ago. And we were educated. We read books. We knew about reactive att- attachment disorder, RAD. We knew that they might be developmentally delayed. We knew all of those things. We were never told about the ACE study. We even... When, s-
0: when did the ACE study happen?
2: It was in the 90s, 97-ish, maybe 95, 97. So
0: this is not some new thing. No. Relatively speaking. is a quarter of a century old. Right. Okay, right. continue.
2: Right. And so we went to um, Children's Hospital in Cincinnati that had an international adoption um, specialty clinic. Never heard about the ACE study. And so I really believe that parents need to know that if their children are exposed to some of these things, there's research to support that they're more at risk for smoking, they're more at risk for drug abuse, they're more at risk of developing heart disease, they're more at risk of attempting suicide, more at risk of depression, a host of um, various types of cancers. It's not that it predicts the behavior in the future, but it allows people to know what might they might be at risk for, so they can make efforts to prevent some of that.
0: Maury, any thoughts on that? <laughs> Lori is struggling with a cold no. or allergies. Yes, and I she's, am. She's, she's hesitant to speak because she's afraid of, of, of contaminating microphones. I'm, I'm just saying, you just go with it. I sniffle all the time.
1: Do you? Okay. I do. So I, I, pop d- I do I sniffle all the time. You,
0: yes, it's terrible.
1: I didn't pop any Claritin because I was afraid to mix it with the Mucinex and the cough That would have been a
0: great podcast.
1: Would it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. So next it would have been. Next time I will try that. Yeah. Okay. So I think it's very important to start in the OBGYN community, just as Jennifer was saying, that you have to start somewhere and why not start with somebody with a clean A score? You've got this newborn coming into the world that has a zero A score. How can we keep it there? Mm-hmm. And so educating those physicians, educating the parents on the importance of, of knowing what somebody's A score is and trying to mitigate as many of the factors as possible.
0: Has anybody developed an ACE registry? If you're starting at a zero baseline for babies, it seems logical to me that if it's really a tool to look retrospectively at childhood events, that someone would want to create a database where they could look and say, we all zeroed out everybody. Now where are they all at as a cohort?
1: That sounds like something great for you to start. You <laughs> <have your students? laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, along with all the other projects. I, I, as I've gotten older, I focus sp- purely on veterans and veterans' health and, and uh, military experiences, which is interesting. I should tell you that that the Army looked at employing ACEs um, as a screening tool in recruit populations. And had a conversation with uh, someone who is in the know, I won't go any further than that because I don't want to put them and I don't want to dime them out, but I'll just say this, someone who's relatively high up and in the know about behavioral health in the U.S. military, we don't do ACEs in the military. And there's something interesting about that. What it is, number one, there's, is that childhood trauma in the context of what we're talking about is so prevalent that if we used ACEs as a screening tool and said, if you've experienced this, you can't be in the military, that there'd be no one in the military, okay? And we could talk about that in the, in the context of regular civil society too. But it's also strange that there may be, and again, this is really early, but there may be an adaptive value. Someone that has a high or a significant ACEs score, if they survive childhood trauma, that may ha- that may actually confer an ad- a positive adaptive ability for them in the military.
2: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there's nothing- You in- have thoughts on that? I do. Well, Go. Well, the ACE score was not designed to say that this individual is somehow a weaker person and unable to serve- Our country or this person shouldn't be you know in this line of work it's really about health outcomes and personally it's been my experience that some individuals who've experienced trauma are some of the strongest individuals I know emotionally and mentally and that has to do with resiliency factors Mm -hmm. and and you know, being in supportive environments. So to apply the ACE score in a way that it wasn't intended I think just further stigmatizes people who are in some f- some form of recovery. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think it's a really important thing, and I wanna talk about resilience as a concept here in a minute. I think it's an important thing that we make sure that people understand that ACEs is not looking at uh, a binary situation of either you suffered childhood trauma or you didn't and therefore you're either flawed or not, as Jennifer said, "It's really looking at actually physiological health outcomes, things like your propensity for suicide, things, those kind of things, which directly affect primary care providers all over the country. You need to have some kind of idea of the propensity for your patient to maybe go down the road towards something really serious that you're that you're more used to. I mean, it goes back to this idea of screening colonoscopies. We don't think anything of putting a scope into someone at the age of 50 because we know that colon cancer is easily, relatively easily treated if caught early." Um, why wouldn't we do the same thing if we know ahead of the ahead of the game 20 30 years because of these events that a person may have a greater predilection for the development of diabetes or other cancers i think that makes complete sense and so bringing it back to the idea of doing aces if a children's hospital doesn't know how to do doesn't wasn't doing it um, and other people aren't knowing how to do it then the buy-in is if you can reduce overall health costs down the road not behavioral health costs but physiologic mm-hmm. anatomic health costs then maybe it's a good idea to start investigating it as something that should be incorporated in the normal workflow of general primary care, mm-hmm. I think. That makes sense to me, I think. Uh, okay, so resiliency. <clears throat> so I, There's a couple terms. Excuse me. <coughs> See, I, I have no I have, regard for coughing. I have I just, cough drops in my pocket. <laughs> no, you, well, you, well, no, I'm saying if you want to sneeze, <laughs> it's perfectly acceptable. So when, there's there's a, there's resiliency, there's robustness, There's anti-fragility. There's a good book out called Antifragile, which is kind of meanders along. It's relatively complicated, but the author of Antifragile, which I'll post this in the show notes too, doesn't like the term resiliency and robustness because it doesn't imply a certain flexibility that he thinks is necessary in terms of thinking. And in fact, he argues that it's good for people to live in a low level of chaos and unpredictability in life, because life itself is unpredictable and they need to get used to that. Whereas resiliency says when I'm hardened against these things, but I may not be capable of withstanding something else. So um, I only bring that up as an academic discussion. When you hear these terms spoken, especially resiliency, because it's so common, it's important to understand what resiliency is and isn't in the context of other academic discussions. So what is resiliency?
2: Resiliency is that idea that you can get knocked down and you get back up mm-hmm. and you can survive and thrive despite what has happened to you.
0: Does, does resiliency, and this is where the argument of fragility comes into play, resiliency suggests that, that an abnormal event occur that you respond to and you do so in an adaptive way. Antifragility would say that those things you think are abnormal aren't really that abnormal. Life is kind of chaotic. And you just need to accept the fact that at times you're going to get punched. I and think, that's kind of normal.
2: I uh, think that's true. I think life is unpredictable. I think it's hard. No one goes through life unscathed. We all get punched. But we don't all suffer toxic stress at a young age. Mm-hmm. Chronic toxic stress that impacts us at a cellular level. That's not normal. That's not an experience we all share, and the fact of the matter is, some people have resiliency to overcome some of that, um, and some people are less resilient.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me ask you guys another question, which I think I know the answer to, but I want to make sure that I did because you guys are in the trenches, so to speak, with this. Does does social st- is, is does your status in life? mean that you're going to be a victim of trauma. And what I mean by that is, are people who live in poverty necessarily going to be victims of trauma? And are people who live in affluence not going to be victims of trauma?
2: I don't think it's that simple. It's no, no.
0: Yeah. I know plenty of poor people who grew up in pretty stable homes. Mm-hmm. They just struggle along and they have to work through things, but their families, their the family unit's pretty intact. They work together. I mean, that's mm-hmm. your experience too, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And I know many affluent families that have tremendous problems in terms of that. So that's your experience too? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's easy for us to stereotype appearance and assume that because things look great on the outside that maybe nothing bad has happened to someone or because something looks really bad and this is particularly common in appalachia right we can drive down the road and see pretty desperate looking conditions Mm -hmm. and yet that may be a fairly functional family that Mm -hmm. that's doing okay they just don't have a lot of of material means
1: right and the aces doesn't ask it doesn't it, it does not ask if you were raised with enough money it asks were you raised in a home where you were neglected, where there was physical violence, mm-hmm. where there was mental illness, where somebody went to prison or jail. So it's not asking yeah. the financial questions.
0: Yeah, so it's applicable to everybody. Yes. Yeah, And then, like again, Laurie, the reason why I say that is because I think in, as an educator, you look at students, it's easy to start pigeonholing people based upon appearance. We live in a world of identity politics and stuff mm-hmm. where people say, well, you're this because you look this way. Right. And I hate to say that, I hate to see that because I think it's really naive it doesn't really address what really happens in the world you guys want to talk about some of your cases or did you you had something specific we talked about this before you said you have plenty of examples of aces and how that works
2: what well, we do i wondered if it might be helpful to know how the aces came to be because it's really kind of an interesting story do it okay dr vince Folletti. Mm-hmm. he was working and he was the director at kaiser permanente and at the time he was running a very well established weight loss clinic that was extreme people would come to him when they weighed over 300 pounds he and his team would put them on an extreme diet and over the course of a several you know of years they would lose hundreds of pounds and the program was going really well except half of the people dropped out and I actually um, had the pleasure of meeting Dr. filetti He's a tall, silver haired man, very meticulous. And
0: psychologist? Psychiatrist? MD. Okay. Is he a psychiatrist?
2: No. no.
0: So he's not a behavioral health?
2: No, no. He's working at a weight loss clinic. Oh,
0: bariatrician.
2: No, I think I think he did a number of things. Um what Google has to say. Yeah, Google. Oh, you're going Google. to the
0: ubiquitous the ubiquitous brain. Yeah. Interesting. So this guy, he's not involved in anything that you would nope. think traditionally would generate this type nope. of inquiry.
2: No, no. Even better than that, he knows almost, I would say, nothing about trauma at the time of He was of an this.
1: internist who started as an infectious disease physician in 1968 at Kaiser Permanente in San Diego. And in 1975, founded the Department of Preventive Medicine, where he served as chief until 2001.
0: So he's a pretty nuts and bolts yes. physician dealing with disease and that sort of thing. Right. Interesting. So back to your story, Jennifer, he's, he's working in a weight loss capacity, mm-hmm. helping people to lose weight. Half of the people are dropping out mm-hmm. of his program. Continue. And,
2: okay. And this bothers him, of course. Why would someone come, lose hundreds of pounds, and then quit? So he starts looking into this and he looks through everyone's medical records and he can't, he, he sees a couple of themes. These are all individuals who were born a normal weight. These are all individuals who lost the weight in his program and they're individuals who then pretty much gained all the weight back. But it doesn't answer for him that question of, okay, so why did they drop out? Why would this happen? So he starts interviewing these individuals because he's rigid, he's meticulous, he wants to know what's going on. So he has a series of questions and it's part of it is review. You know, how much did you weigh when you were born? You know, when did you first become sexually active? When were you married? How much did you weigh at this age or when you were married? And he's asking people these questions and he sits down with one of his patients named Donna. And, and Donna had lost several hundreds of pounds, just like everyone else, and he's meeting with her. And instead of asking her, how old were you when you became sexually active? He misspoke. And he asked her, how much did you weigh when you became sexually active? And she said, 40 pounds. And, and he thought I, he sat there in silence for a moment and he thought, I, I don't understand. Did she misspeak? What did I, so he he asked her again, how much did you weigh when you were first sexually active? She said 40 pounds and she began to cry and she said it was my father. At that moment, Dr. filetti thought that this woman was only his second case in his career of having met a survivor of incest now we know that that's not true of course yeah what are the numbers that's a good question i don't know that in terms of incest it's more prevalent than people think but more than two more than two yeah so this was so fascinating to him that he started to ask that question to more of these individuals he was meeting. Over and over again, he got similar responses. So many that he started to think he was having some sort of bias in the way he was asking the question. So he pulled in some of his coworkers and said, listen, we have about 200 more people to interview. I want you to ask these questions so they do and they come up with similar results and he he believed at that moment he was really on to something so a conference comes up in atlanta and he flies himself from california to atlanta to present these findings because he thinks it's like amazing like he he's really kind of discovered something and he gives this presentation and no one is interested. And a man in the back of the room even challenges him and says, Dr. filetti our patients lie. They say things to make up excuses for their miserable existence, basically. And you can imagine Dr. filetti's dejected. He flew all the way there. He thought he had this great information. So he goes to dinner with the group, and he's at a table. And he's at a table with a man from the CDC who says, Dr. Folletti, I, I can see you're kind of upset with the response you got. I think you might be onto something. And I want to introduce you to Dr. Anda, a coworker of mine, who is studying men with heart disease. And I, I think I think the two of you need to meet and talk about that. And it was that kind of relationship between Dr. Folletti at Kaiser Permanente in California, and this Dr. Anda from the CDC, they came up with these 10 questions, and it went from there. There's the 17,000 people that they got were all um, people f- who were getting their health care needs taken care of through Kaiser Permanente in California. They were predominantly white, middle-class, college-educated, individuals, back to your question about poverty or race or socioeconomic background. Um, and when the results came in, Dr. Anda is quoted as saying he wept. He had no idea so many people were suffering.
0: Were these females and males? Yes. okay. and and it was what he's really finding out is uh, at least in part sexual trauma. And correlation with weight, or was it a separate type of thing from his initial question that he asked?
2: So what Dr. filetti found out was about the weight and the sexual trauma. And yeah. what he didn't really know at that moment was this whole idea of he saw weight mm-hmm. and obesity as their problem. They saw weight gain as their solution to their problem. They knew if they gained weight, They were invisible.
0: Ah, so they're hiding. They're trying to hide in a threat environment.
2: Yes. Wow. And so that is something that CTIC and others want to emphasize, too, is that what we see as professionals, as problems, are often coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. You know, you you talk to people in recovery. They didn't have that first beer because they thought, I want to... Become an alcoholic, lose my job, lose my family. You know, that wasn't why they had that beer. You know, it likely made them feel good. Mm-hmm. It likely solved something else they were experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um and that's really important to figuring out why people are the way they are.
0: Yeah. And it's really difficult in a professional population. If you select for people to come into the medical professions, um, they, they, generally speaking, have to be very self-motivated. They have to be very self-actualized. They have to be very focused and determined and, and I would say mentally and emotionally strong to do this stuff. And there's this easy thing you can do, which is conflate your experience with other people. I was having this discussion this, this weekend about addiction. Uh, a friend of mine was saying, I don't understand how people can get addicted. To things. I took Vicodin once. It made me feel awful. I want to take it again. I said, "We, you understand that everybody isn't the same person. And there's this whole interplay of biology and genes and emotional state, a lot of genetics, probably some, most of which we don't quite fully understand yet, where that one person's Vicodin that says, Yeah, I don't feel great. I'll just take ibuprofen. There's another person's trigger and they say, This is the best thing I've ever had in my life. I'm going to do more. And the next thing you know, they're using heroin. I mean, the, the assumption that just like these people at this conference of, well, they all lie. Yeah, there's probably a small subset of people who will lie, but it's probably not most of them. And it's probably not most of them by a long shot. You know, most people generally want to be pretty forthcoming. And if they're willing to take a question that focused about your first age of sexual onset, I have a hard time getting my head around the fact that the bulk of people be lying about that. Sounds like a very matter of factual. Let me think. I was about seven. I probably weighed or four, six, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Something horrific, and uh, yeah, it's forty pounds. That's not something that's easy to lie about. Right. You you, you kind of have to have a, a, a clear set point, you know. And so it's it's amazing to me uh, how confirmation bias affects us in the healthcare professions of just saying, "Well, it can't possibly be. It can always possibly be. Anything is possible." Um, you know anything that can happen will happen that's probability it's murphy's law right anything that can happen will happen and so wow that's a fascinating story and so he got linked i assume this guy at the cdc is an epidemiologist probably or a cardiovascular epidemiologist or something where he's looking i
2: think he may have been and i lori's going straight to the google machine yeah thank goodness we have google next to us yeah
0: i keep saying in the old days it was index medicus and that was a nightmare now i just go to google or I go to pub, I go to PubMed. Yeah, go keep going.
2: At the time, Dr. Anda, who was with the CDC, was studying something related to um, men and heart disease and depression. And I think he was kind of trying to figure out, you know, some of these men had depression, maybe before they had heart disease, where he was expecting maybe the opposite of that. And so he had a similar interest as Dr. Folletti, but with a different disorder. Dr. Folletti is looking at obesity. Dr. Anda is looking at heart disease and they're both trying to figure out what's at play with all of this.
0: Yeah, I, because I deal with largely, you know, 11% of veterans are women. So most of the population that I focus on is male. And in, especially in areas of sexual trauma, I have to remind medical students that one of, the, one of the double-edged swords aspect of raising awareness of assault in women is neglecting the fact that a lot of men are assaulted. People don't really fully appreciate that. And I think there's some social taboos about talking about that, about the impact on a young man or a boy's life with sexual trauma. And it's another hidden aspect of what happens to many young people that people will just ignore that and, it, and it's, it doesn't have an impact. Um, I, I'm probably a little bit sensitive to um, child abuse, um, not necessarily because I had any experience with it personally, but because I, there's just something about it that I find so repugnant and abhorrent that um, discussions of that uh, compromise me emotionally. Like I could yeah. react very easily to someone that I think has caused a child harm. I think you'll find that in a lot of people, especially yeah. a lot of soldiers, because we see things where you see the suffering of young people mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a bad thing. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I'm still getting my head around these people, the bariatric population, That, that the medic, common medical community is saying, well, you know, they're just making excuses for behavior. And yet that person, that may have been the best survival mechanism they could find.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really hard for practitioners then because someone shows up in your office with behaviors that are not, that that you might identify as the problem, the smoking, the drug use, the drinking, you know, the weight gain the instability with employment, whatever the situation is, and being mindful that that those things may have occurred as a result of protecting themselves from some bigger problem.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, one thing that was illustrative to me, and as we close out the second segment here, is when I worked, went to work at the behavioral health hospital and the discussion the psychiatrist had with us about the use of nicotine mm-hmm. and that nicotine is neuroprotective. Mm-hmm. And so in the psychiatry world... Nicotine's given all the time in psychiatric patients. And I, I thought, as a family doctor, I thought, you know, I have never known a person with behavioral health issues that doesn't smoke. And I didn't understand that. And once the psychiatrist explained to me that, oh, yeah, nicotine, like, stabilizes neurons as a drug. We're not talking about the smoking with the carcinogens. It, that's just the delivery system What they're trying to use that nicotine because it makes their brains feel better. Mm-hmm. And drug addicts, it makes their brains feel better. So they right. literally feel better when they smoke. And if you're a person that's trying to find comfort... Well, then it stands to reason why. And it stands to reason why there's this sort of, um, you know, I won't use the term recidivism because that's more of a legal term, but this sort of relapsing habit of people who have behavioral health issues that if their home life isn't stable or anything sets, gets their brain agitated, stressed or anything else, the natural default is i got to go smoke a cigarette because it's going to make them feel better. And I think we need to think about a lot of these problems as physicians in a different way of saying instead of judging these people, just understand that there's real reasons why they're electing to do mm-hmm. something. I used to, Jeff. I used to sit back and look and say, if I tell you what's really weird is you go to Europe, they put pictures of horrible lung disease problems on every pack of cigarettes. The whole pack of cigarettes is like, here's what your lungs look with cancer. Here's a person who's on it was COPD, and people still buy cigarettes. Of course. And you say, look, you can tell people to your blue in the face. What's going to happen to them in 20 years? But if all they know is right now they're experiencing tremendous psychological stress, and if they just smoke a cigarette, they can calm down and try to get a, a picture of the world that makes sense to them, you're never going to be successful getting them off of cigarettes. Right. It right. just won't happen. And people, you know, wow, you just, just got to be stronger. Like, that's great. It doesn't work that way. And it's hard to get people to accept that, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Lori just stepped out. She had a critical phone call. I
1: did from the school.
0: Really? Which school? My school? My daughter's school? Oh, I gotta get your levels back. Your your daughter's school, is she okay? Yeah. You don't have just, to leave.
1: No, they just needed permission to give her some medicine. Oh.
0: Did did you give them permission to give you medicine too?
1: Well it's ibuprofen, so I'm,
0: is that really medicine? No, I don't really get that. I, it is actually. But that's cool. Hey, so did you stepped out, but did you have any thoughts before we close the second segment? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. So what do we want to talk about in the third segment? You kept talking about these cases and examples. And then you went into this history lesson, which I think is great. This is really good. The
1: history lesson is very important. I think it's I very think, important. Well, we can certainly do cases.
0: Okay, so that's what we're going to do. We're gonna, You guys are good for another segment? Sure. Of course.
1: I'm not prepared to talk about a case, so well, can we have a minute to...
0: Of course.
1: We'll take a week.
0: Lori's very serious.
1: I am very serious. She's very serious. I've always been serious.
0: Next time you come, you're going to bring coffee. Yeah. I'm gonna so, stop
1: at Speedway and get a giant coffee.
0: So for those of yeah, you could. And you could see Helen and D. So anyway, and Brian. Anyway, and everybody else. So here's the thing, guys. This this topic is is very uh it's not unique. It's been around for a quarter of a century, but it's got elevated awareness. And one of the things we're gonna talk about in the next segment is the application in education. And you'll, well, we'll go through that, but it's going to be about a week from now. I want to thank Lori again and Jennifer for being here. And I think we'll hear more from them as time goes on because CTEC is an ongoing activity. Um, one thing you've heard me talk about many times is the state of healthcare in Ohio. I love Ohio as a state. I think uh, among the 54 states and territories, Ohio gets most of what it does with regard to healthcare pretty right. I mean, healthcare... Mental health care is complex, and it's it's messy work. And I've always felt as a practitioner here, and I have licenses in other states, that Ohio does a really good job of trying to get it as right as they can. And so that there's an initiative in southeast Ohio uh, trying to raise the awareness of ACEs and its impact on overall long-term health. I think it doesn't surprise me. It's something that I think is a is a pretty cool thing, and I think it reflects the best practices of, of health care in the state of Ohio. So with that, I'm going to end this segment. I wish you the best of weeks, and uh, we'll pick up with Lori and Jennifer in about a week. Um, otherwise, take care. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of the Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we sometimes pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators. You must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by tweeting us at Medical Cinema, for Todd, at Prof Plow, for Brian, Nisarg Bakshi for Nassar Bakshi and at Rotations PCAST or by visiting MediaMedicine.com slash Rotations. Check us out on Facebook at Media and Medicine. And finally, for me, Todd Fredericks, you can also send me a message through my Facebook page at TR Fredericks. But please, I have sensitive feelings, so embrace your inner non-hidden.